0: From the Cumberland Plateau and the University of the South, this is the Swanee Review Podcast. I'm Helen Wainena, Assistant Editor at the Swanee Review, and I am here today at the Boston Listening Room with Ross Gay, who is the author of three books of poetry, including catalog of Unabashed Gratitude, which was the winner of the 2016 National Book Critics Circle Award and that year's Kingsley Tufts Poetry Prize. Um, He's also written a book of short essays titled The Book of Delights, and he currently serves as the professor of English at Indiana University in Bloomington. Ross, welcome to Swarney.
1: Thank you very much. Glad to be here.
0: I wanted to begin with, which one is your favorite? Which book?
1: (laughs) Which book? Gosh, good question.
0: Is that, a, is that fair to ask? <laughs> it's totally fair.
1: I don't know that I can answer it well, but I can sort of tell you, golly, that's such a great question in a way. Unfair, totally <laughs> unfair. But you know, like even the my second book, Bringing the Shovel Down, that's a book that remains very interesting to me and sort of exciting to me to go back to it and to see like the things I was working out. Mm-hmm. I feel really lucky for the work that Catalog of Unabashed Gratitude has done in the world, like sort of... It feels lucky that that book feels like to be in conversation with or participating in conversations about joy and joy in poetry or joy as the the rightful subject of our literary concerns or inquiries. Mm-hmm. And then The Delights is so fun because it's, I mean, it's just like, it feels like a neat project. It feels like a neat exercise, something that got me to think in, in ways that other, obviously otherwise I would not have been able to think, but also has gotten other people to sort of think in ways. It's also so fun to read from the Book of Delights because I'm basically just like, I'm going to read to you about stuff that has delighted me mm-hmm. <laughs> and hang on. You know? <laughs> so that feels really lucky.
0: Yeah. Well, I was going to say Book of Delights was my first mm-hmm. sort of introduction to your work. Mm-hmm. And I think you're really mischievous. <laughs> <laughs> so two things. One, for Book of Delights, there's a quite a bit of death mm-hmm. yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh,
1: yeah and
0: I I think it feels inappropriate to say that there's a kind of playfulness <laughs> to death but I think oh, I think there is yeah
1: it's part of life right yeah yeah it's part of life and
0: I think that sort of dealing and approaching that I mean <laughs>
1: mm-hmm.
0: that it's kind of our inevitable yeah for all of us that yeah. uh, we we come in contact with death As I think there's some of that and mm-hmm. then there are just some Moments in the book where I was reading and I I was laughing (laughs) (laughs) out loud, maybe I just sort of recognition that some of these things that you're encountering, like the baby in the airplane, (laughs) right? The little toddler waddling around. That was I've been in those yeah. situations where yeah. I lose all capacity for language yeah. and all I can sort of do or a, my attempt at communicating with a baby is like nonsense. Totally. Right. To right. But,
1: right. but it may, it's, it's the language. It's right. how we talk to babies. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah. In number five, where you're talking about that phrase, a hole in the head, mm-hmm. the way that that begins just It made me laugh. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I was supposed to laugh, but it made me laugh and it made me think of just sort of ridiculous phrases that we have.
1: Hole in the head. I love weird vernacular sayings that roll off the tongue and most likely have an interesting lineage, etymology, history. I can't think of one right now, but you know what I mean. Oh, here's one. I need X like I need a hole in my head. This means I do not need X. I need to be fired like I need a hole in my head. I need this cancer to resurface like I need a hole in my head. I need my kid to get back on heroin like I need a hole in my head. Interesting, sad, I mean, that usage of the simile often implies that a hole in the head administered by oneself might be a reasonable response. I think one of the things that this book is doing and what you're pointing at is that often the delight that I'm talking about is right next to, if not overlapping, with its exact opposite. And this is this moment where this essay, which is, you know, is about kind of profound brutality, racist brutality in America. It starts off with the desire to sort of point out this, like, look at this little quirky thing that we say. Yeah. You know, and then it veers off. And I think that happens a lot where either the delight is sort of right behind or right next to something that's terrible or what's terrible is right next to something that's delightful. Yeah. Which seems like life.
0: Yeah. And I think that was, I mean, just that phrase, like, this means I do not need.
1: It. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, you
0: yeah. know, that felt like a, well, yes, of course, I don't need a yeah. hole in my yeah. head. Yeah. And yeah. also, but that's not a reasonable response right. to any situation, right. really. Just as you were saying that a lot of times the joyful or the great things in life are sometimes almost are usually really close to sorrowful yeah. and dark things in life. And when I read that particular moment, it brought me back to when I was learning English mm-hmm. and in my family, and we were talking about this and sort of navigating that world together. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I remember sort of thinking, uh, or not really fully understanding follow your heart. Oh <laughs> yeah, sure. And that's a really weird <laughs> and, just a strange sort of phrase, and sure. if you don't speak the language yeah. and aren't familiar with it, it doesn't feel like it's connected, or it doesn't feel like it's something that is maybe necessarily intuitive. And I yeah. think the same thing with these delights and yeah, yeah
1: and sorrow. I mean, I want to go back to follow your heart. That mm-hmm. what a great like poem or essay about that. Like like, what would it mean to follow your heart? Like, where would your heart go? And you know, <laughs> like to sort of tease out. This is one of those strange sayings that is completely, you know, on commercials and everywhere else. Yeah. But it's actually once you say, wait, so would I follow my heart right to behind my ribs? And they would just be like,
0: you know. (laughs) (laughs) How do I get inside my body? And yeah, Yeah. and follow that. The other thing, too, that I think that sort of proximity to sorrow or to grief or to maybe a kind of darkness, Mm -hmm. but also finding a way to have joyfulness or maybe to finding delight. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's a really nice attention to the reader there that mm-hmm. you're bringing into. And I, I think that's something that you sort of trace through all of your work. Mm-hmm. At, at the end of all of these books, there's a kind of acknowledgement that sort mm-hmm. of says, thank you, reader. Yeah. And I, I feel really almost vindicated mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, hearing you speak about Nikki Finney's work mm-hmm. and the work that it does to sort of embrace and bring people. And so, I yeah. wanted to ask you about in that regard, in your own work, in this kind of playfulness and this kind of attention to joy and grief, mm-hmm. um, where does the reader fit into that?
1: I'm glad that you mentioned um, Nikki's work too, because I was thinking, yeah, it's a kind of literary etc. gesture that I admire in other writers. I'm always my first audience, like I'm, I'm always first writing to myself. Mm-hmm. But then the the audience is absolutely it's you. And whoever the you might be who would be kind enough to listen to me thinking. So, it's absolutely integral to the way that I even think of things. And and I think probably over the course of the last two books, for sure, I've been trying to figure out how to talk in a piece of literature in a way that really sounds as close to like we maybe are together. Mm -hmm. You know, that maybe we're really actually sitting here you know, at the table having a conversation and I'm telling you this story or I'm worrying about this thing, which is all to say, yeah, the reader is, I'm a writer for whom the reader is like, is really, really important. I'm always addressing the reader.
0: Yeah. Well, and some of your poems begin with that, like friends. Yeah,
1: totally. (laughs) Totally.
0: (laughs) Where does that come from? I mean, what you were saying before, um, you're sort of your first own person that you're
1: speaking to is you. Yeah
0: that's a really kind way to approach yourself. Mm. Is that a cultivation? Is that, mm. or where did that begin almost?
1: You know, as, in terms of being a writer, I feel like the, the work that I'm trying to do is this kind of asking questions about whatever, in the case of the Book of Delights, what delights me, what I love. And the asking of the question is to myself. And the objective of the asking is to change my relationship in some way, to the thing that I'm asking about. So that if I have a kind of new relationship to this, this experience or this thing, that's enough, actually, that's enough. The second part is trying to turn it into something that someone else might also be able to sort of have a relationship to. So that's how, you know, the first thing about these poems is that it has to, they have to change me, or these essays, they have to change me first. If I'm not changed, then I'm kind of like, well, You know, maybe I got better at writing a sentence or learned something about the line break or, but I, the reason I write is to think very rigorously about things that I do not understand. I want to come closer to them. And usually that's me. (laughs) You know, I'm usually the, the, the first thing that I don't understand. So the writing is often about trying to understand myself better.
0: Is there a poem or an essay from any of your works that sort of embodies that, trying to understand, but also as a self-address?
1: Probably the poem, um, what's it called? It has a...
0: <laughs> this is great. I'm quizzing you. I know, I know, I know.
1: There's a poem in there that is very much this. And I remember the process of writing it, being sort of surprised by, to my best friend's big sister it's called, to my best friend's big sister. One never knows, does one, how one comes to be standing most ways to naked in front of one's pal's big sister, who has simply, by telling me to, gotten me to shed all but the scantest flap of fabric and twirl before her like a rotisserie chicken. As she observes and offers thoughtful critique of my just pubescent physique, which is not a thing to behold, what with my damp trunks clinging to my damp crotch, and proportion and grace are words the definition of which I don't yet know, nor did I ask the many-skirted scientists sitting open-legged and now shoeless on my mom's couch— Though it may have been just this morning while chucking papers, I heard through the Rob bass and DJ Easy Rock pulsing my Walkman a morning dove, struggling, snared in the downspout's mouth, and without lowering the volume or missing a verse, I crinkled the rusted aluminum trap enough that with a little wriggle it was free, and did not at once wobble to some power line but sat on my hand and looked at me for at least one verse of It Takes Two sort of bobbing its head and cooing once or twice before flopping off. But that seems very long ago now, as I pirouette my hairless and shivering warble of acne and pudge, burning a hole in the rug as Big Sis tosses off Greek and Latin words like pectorals and gluteus maximus, standing to show me what she means with her hands on my love handles. And now I can see myself trying to add some gaudy flourish to this memory to make of it a fantasy, which is why I linger, hoping to misrecall the child me. Make of me someone I wasn't. Make of this experience the beginning of a new life. Gilded doors kicked open, blaring trombones, a full beard, Isaac Hayes singing in the background, and me thundering forth on the wild steed of emergent manhood. But I think this child was not that child, obscuring as he was his breasts by tucking his hands into his armpits, and having never even made love to himself yet was not really a candidate for much, besides the chill of a minor shame that he would forget for 15 years, one of what would prove to be many such shames, stitched together like a quilt, with all its just legible patterning, which could be a thing heavy and warm to be buried in, or instead might be held up to the light, where we see the threads barely holding, so human and frail, so beautiful and sad and small from this remove. So that poem, you know, like in the process of writing it, it gave me the occasion to think, well, what is shame? Like, what is the feeling of shame? And then even to have the metaphor, which came through the process of writing the poem of this quilt that you could wrap yourself in shame and be buried in it. Or you could hold your shame up and watch and just see it and have it out in the light and see the light come through it. But that was not how I got into that poem. I did not even know that's what I was writing about, you know? So that's my ambition in writing these things to actually have come out of them with more clarity than I, than I went into them with.
0: I was just thinking of <laughs> the Scarlet Letter <laughs> when you were reading <laughs> yeah. it. But there's that really beautiful line somewhere three Is a way into the book where he says everything that is sort of not in these exact words, but everything that is shameful must come out into the sun and into the sunlight. And I had a really generous teacher Mm -hmm. (laughs) in high school who was sort of saying a lot of it's about shame, but Mm -hmm. it's not about sort of condemning that person Mm -hmm. into the shame. But I think what our teacher was trying to communicate to us was that. There are all of these things that you hold within yourself, memories and misunderstandings or whatever abnormality that you are encasing within yourself that really, in truth, if you reveal it or if you bring it to the light to someone you trust or even just to yourself to see it in writing or in in the world can sort of free you.
1: So much, yeah. One of my great teachers in that is the poet Toy Derricotte. And all of her work, but her work is very much about a kind of revelation. And I think she models this kind of self-inquiry that, as well as anyone, any poet, any writer, I know, holding things to the light in a way that not only clearly does work for her, but in a way that so clearly, to me, makes it possible for me to consider doing the same thing
0: sort of just bringing up artists or people that you're looking into or mm-hmm. thinking about there's a lot of music yeah in music. <laughs> yeah, even in that phone yeah that's right listening to music listening to verse are you a musician
1: oh you know i'm not i mean i played the saxophone as a kid kind of through high school i like to sing <sighs> yeah but i'm deep into music i love music and i get lost in music
0: who are you listening to?
1: I'm often kind of on a, an Erica Badu train. I'm actually writing this book about, not writing a book about, maybe I'm, I'm writing a book about <laughs> <laughs> the falsetto. So I'm, I'm really interested in falsetto singers. So I've been kind of deep in like Moses Sumney, um, this incredibly beautiful falsetto singer. There's someone also named Gallant or Gallant. I'm not sure how you pronounce his name. Really beautiful handful of those folks. Jamila Woods is someone who I, whose work I really, really love. That's a handful. Oh, Stevie Wonder. I've been kind of like on a Stevie Wonder train too. Um, and it's a, a handful of his records. But for the last few years, I've been into like flying. <laughs> 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 I'm interested in flight and I'm interested in like the ways that different musicians, particularly black musicians, talk about flight. Mm-hmm. So like his song Saturn, which is on, the songs in the key of life, I think. Some of these songs about other worlds are very interesting to me. Stevie Wonder, I could go on and on.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, here's where I was hoping we might take this is odes.
1: Oh. oh. You,
0: there's a great, number of odes in your yeah. in your collection yeah is that connected where
1: mm, to the music
0: yeah uh. is an ode song
1: oh that's so interesting I don't know does it mean song
0: I thought it did
1: maybe it does it very well might I am. I love odes because it's in a way it's funny because there's so many odes in catalog of best gratitude and then the delights ends up being a book of odes effectively it's it's odes to things that delight me
0: <laughs> you know <laughs> oh I wish I had thought of that
1: and <laughs> I could have been like I know <laughs> you're just right hello now.
0: <laughs> <laughs> your entire book <laughs> I know
1: <laughs> and I am. I love odes because I th- I think that's that's probably one of the ways that I actually think um, I th- approach writing or the kind of inquiry that writing for me allows me to do mm-hmm. is to think about I'm just going to think very devotionally about this thing. So the devotionally devotional thinking might be about like the buttons on my shirt, or it might be about you know the mulberry tree in the neighborhood. So it's a kind of, it's an oding, but it also ends up being kind of these ways to sort of think hard and long about these other things. My movement with the ode is like through Neruda's odes, mm-hmm. and and then I have other friends, Adeseli Skirmay and Patrick Rosal, and all these other people who write odes. Who I'm around them and reading their work, and I just like I want to I want to do what they do. So so I'm inspired by them. Yeah. Do you have any memorized? No, I don't. Oh, I should.
0: <laughs> do you, well, here's a question. Do you speak Spanish?
1: Poorly, you know, a little bit. A little bit, yeah, poorly.
0: Do you yeah. read his?
1: I read it in English.
0: I was just curious.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you?
0: Do I speak Spanish yeah. or do I read Spanish? Either. <laughs> um, I do. I'm not as disciplined <laughs> as I had <laughs> hoped I would be. Uh-huh. <laughs> I think you think that when you're younger that you'll just get better at, you know, committing to things. Uh uh, Or maybe, Uh maybe that's just a millennial excuse, but I, (laughs) I used to read the newspaper (laughs) in Spanish because I thought it would help really ingrain the practice and help me learn the vocabulary. But I do, I do read and I do, I try to, I think it's important. I also, because I, my family speaks Swahili at home. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's nice to be able to move in both worlds. Totally, yeah.
1: Totally. I should memorize an ode. I, I, the th- next time we do this, I'll have one memorized.
0: Do you have other works memorized? Is that a, a the, practice?
1: <laughs> <laughs> you know, I have a terrible memory. I remember I, I, so I used to be in, um, I used to do some <laughs> theater.
0: <laughs> oh, so you should definitely have monologues.
1: <laughs> I, know. Oh. I know. I used to do theater and, um, my friend, Brooke, who, who I'm actually working on something with her now, I would get ready for these plays. I remember she was directing a play that I was in, and she was like, you know, you actually have to memorize the words. You can't just say <laughs> <laughs> the idea. But anyway, the, the poem that I have, one of the poems that I have memorized is um is a Toy Derricotte poem, and it's called Tender. Um, and it's the tenderest meat comes from the house's where you hear the least squealing. The secret is to give a little wine before killing. Hmm.
0: Yeah. Why that one? What was your first encounter with
1: it? I was reading her book, Tender, and it just like, struck me as such an amazing sort of, I mean, that it can resonate on so many levels, like even as, as a critique of, of consumerism or capitalism. I mean, as like a really succinct critique of capitalism or consumerism that, which is the wine that will permit us to kill ourselves. I think probably when I read that poem, and I would guess probably I read that in the early two thousands, it was a, a model for me, an example of how you can do a kind of intense theory in a short amount of space with incredible sort of emotional power. And also that has a kind of, metaphorical refracting power to be about many things at once mm-hmm. i just think it's an amazing poem and it will never leave my body
0: is that memory is that connection to that poem related to your connection to sort of place mm-hmm. i feel like there's a lot of blossoming of place that comes through in your works mm-hmm. for example as i was reading the book of delights i had a very silly thought i i was i said oh, of course there are coffee shops in Indiana. <laughs> and do you know what it, <laughs> Of course there are all of these places that people frequent and love and yeah. that are special and dear to them. Yeah. That landscape hadn't been shaped for me prior yeah. to. And the other side of this is there's some essays and some poems, I think are set in the Northeast. Mm-hmm. I want to say Philadelphia mm-hmm. and yeah. New York. Yeah, yes, that's right. And my introduction and sort of knowledge of Philadelphia and um, Boston and all of those areas are sort of st- kind of horror stories mm-hmm. <laughs> from people of color that I know yeah. who have lived in those cities and have had terrible experiences yeah. of living in those cities. Yeah. But then I encounter these sort of, I mean, I don't, I don't know that you're writing necessarily directly about the cities, but they're kind of coming through and they're moments of grace. They're places mm-hmm. that you love and there's, there's beauty to those places. Yeah. And, and that's what I was thinking of as you we were saying that mm-hmm. tender connection to that poem, but that is also a really nice, succinct rejection of popular
1: narratives. Yeah, 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 totally. First of all, I love that it was like, oh, right, there are coffee shops. <laughs> 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 totally, that's amazing. I love it. But I love, too, that I also hear you saying that places show up in the work. Mm-hmm. Like, the places sort of become like places right and that feels so more important.
0: human yeah. Lived in. Yeah, yeah yeah yeah
1: that feels so nice thank you for <laughs> for noticing and acknowledging that that that's sort of the thing like i feel like when i'm writing you know like as a person i'm sort of a habitual person so i in my life like if i'm living in philadelphia like i go to these places to eat and i go to these parks and this is where i play basketball and i have these roots you know and there are grooves and it's like it's really a place and mm-hmm. I see the same people and you know, I have friends and all of these things and it's yeah. it's the richness of experience that like when you are in a place, you usually have a kind of richness of experience that I I think I try to sort of make come through the pieces. The pieces, yeah. yeah.
0: Relatedly too, just sort of thinking about odes and places yeah. and just what we were talking about, I wanted to ask where is this beauty of places and spaces? How do you shape your eye to see that? Or is it just, mm. how is that cultivated? How does it come about?
1: Yeah, great question. I mean, I think it's like, it's a practice. Mm-hmm. Because every place has beauty, right? Every place is is rich with beauty. And to be able to locate that beauty or to attend to that beauty mm-hmm. is something that can feel challenging to do, but I feel like is, I mean, part of the project of that book was actually to give myself really the practice of attending to what delighted me, but like to put a finer point on it, like what I loved about other people or being in spaces with other people or physical space. And one of the things that I found over the process of doing that book was that, of course, like once I start to do it, (laughs) once I make that my vocation and my my job, like my calling, it's like, oh, right. Constantly, constantly, there are things that are like, oh, that's a moment of delight. That's a moment of beauty. I'm in the midst of a moment of beauty. Even if like it feels like the rest of everything is like, oh, this isn't great. <laughs> but to be able in in the midst of that, to be like, but that is a beautiful moment. It feels like a practice and it feels challenging. And it feels like I know myself, I'm not always able to do, to do that. Like the other day I was I was kind of like having a really, a moment of just being like stressed out and like, ah, and the cat ran out of the house. I'm like, God damn, come here. <laughs> and, uh, and I knew that like, like there was some conversation. I knew there was going to be, there was something to do with my book going on. And I knew people were going to be talking about Delight and Roscoe. <laughs> <laughs> And I was like, man, I wish they could see me because <laughs> <laughs> I was so undelighted. I was so undelighted, which is only to say that it's not, it's not easy. You know, it's not easy. You know, maybe some people are a little bit more inclined that way. Maybe some people are not. I don't particularly think I am more inclined that way, but what I do feel and feel like I learned over the course of writing the book was that the practice of attending to what you love, whatever it is, and then sharing what you love And like, if it's possible to bring people with you, you know, to share what you love with other people, I feel like that feels really lucky. And I feel like I feel really lucky when I'm in the presence of someone who's like, oh, I love this thing. You know, I love this thing. You want some? You know, (laughs) it's lucky.
0: You've said lucky now Mm -hmm. a number of times. Mm -hmm. Why lucky? If it's an attending Mm -hmm. and a nurturing
1: Speaking from personal experience, it's like, sometimes it feels like the chemicals will not permit a kind of, you know, I know that I can feel very differently from one time to the next, and I can look at the same exact thing, and one time I can see a tree about to bloom, and the next time I could see that everything is doomed, like we are doomed. And sometimes that feels like that's, you know, that's just, that's chemical, (laughs) you know, which does not at all negate the question of, like, practice. Mm -hmm. More it is an expression of, like, understanding that, like, it's a thing to be grateful for, to be able to articulate and notice, notice and articulate and share what we find beautiful. So when I'm saying luck, (laughs) I'm also saying gratitude, because I know it could be otherwise. When I was talking yesterday about one of the things that Nikki does so beautifully for us is that she models remembering all of the people who have made this possible, you know, that, you know, there's a very sort of, I think it's American, maybe it's uh, beyond that notion of like the individual talent, you know, the individual who's done something. Mm -hmm. And part of my practice actually, and I think part of the practice of like even thinking about delight and, but thinking about gratitude Part of the practice is to be like, never a thing have I done by myself, not never a thing. And it feels like, so lucky. So, I, you know, I feel lucky. I feel lucky that whatever, that my folks did what they did, that their folks did what, you know, that, that like there was care taken ever. But yeah, Nikki, she does such a beautiful job of being like, we are made of other people. Yeah. We are made of other people. Other people are always with us. We are carrying them with us at this moment. You know, and they—they're, yeah, they're here with us.
0: Yeah, like a culmination of a variety and a number of lives and efforts made to get us to today.
1: Yeah, and how do you live if that's if that's also a practice of remembering and honoring that it's luck and care Mm -hmm. and generosity. It makes me want to try to figure out a share, <laughs> you know? Like, oh, that's right. This is what we do. This is what we come from. Not hoarding. We come from like, come on.
0: An opening, yeah. An opening. Yeah. I was wondering, because you were speaking of, of bringing the shovel down as the yeah. book that you return to and return to again. Is there a poem in this that speaks to what we were just sort of talking about, about the attending and the caring?
1: Yeah, I bet there is. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's called Say It. If I told you we were slapping the beat to some berry white jam crooning from the boombox, and that every single one of us, at one point or another, jumped up to shake what shook on us, and there were lines of us in step, and a loon in every one of our mouths, who knew? And one of us in his pressed shirt, dancing his dead father's hunchbacked smooth, and another singing backup like hers, and another shaking his head no, but meaning yes, oh yes. And if I told you the proprietor of this roti joint dragged his wife from the kitchen where she was busy currying chana for the best doubles in Brooklyn, so she too might witness this unabashed racket, this stampede of glee and goof, this clan of black clad, and if I told you today we laid down one too young to lay down, praise the body its miraculous stutter and thrum. Praise its slosh and drag and drone and every particulate diving toward the dirt. The rampant heart its last kick and holler. The blood clots last long swim to the lung. Praise the lung its last whistle and the kidneys no more. Say this. Say praise the machine hiss your father became and the quick way he gave it up. Say praise the liver's dread swell. Say it again. Say it with your heart and neck and lent throat gaped and flayed to the sky. Say it covering someone's hand with yours. Straighten your tie. Say it to the earth's fat mouth. Say it the way you can turn on your heel to spark fire and make your limber hip twist like a lesser storm, or the way there is a storm between your two good hips, which are good, good music if you listen. Say it in your polished shoes. To the organist, say it too. Praise the heart, its rivers, and each rope twisted in the body, and every bird housed in the body. Vulture, gull, raven, jackrabbit, cask, wick, and flame a bird too. Say praise to flame a bird too. Praise to the nerve endings in your teeth, and to your tongue like a blind man's hand reading her teeth and the tongue inside the eyes, and the nose and the tongue, and the heart in the tongue. Say praise to salt, tear, stain, and skin ripped apart like a kite flipping in the wind. Praise the rip in the kite and the geese flying through it. Praise the wings you swore you had when you were six years old and the wings that remain today. Praise every flower you never smelled, and every dog you never kissed. And the skinny farmer at the market with bad teeth who gave you his last cantaloupe and peppers and snap peas who you never kissed. Praise the handful of freckles dashed across your father's face that you never kissed until he would not wake again. Say it. Say it again. Say praise the sunlight trapped on your father's face and the body's slapdash racket slipping away. If you want to or not, Clean the dirt from your teeth and the glass from your fists if you want to or not. Tie both your shoes and fix your suspenders and praise the heart inside the heart. Cracking its shackles, its thunderclap shrug, its 2,000 dolphins waving goodbye. Praise every day the 2,000 dolphins waving goodbye. Shaking off our hearts and waving goodbye. Our podcast is recorded in the William Ralston Listening Room, located inside DuPont Library at the University of the South in Sewanee, Tennessee. This room is equipped with state-of-the-art audio components and over 30,000 recordings. Classes, listening sessions, and opera screenings are hosted by student curators throughout the school year. To visit or find out more about the Ralston Room, visit their website at library.sawanee.edu backslash Ralston.
0: want to bring to the foreground something that you said and I think that is emerging from this poem and just as you were reading it you were saying yesterday about Nikki's work and your meditation on it as maybe rejecting the idea of brutality being the sort of ground upon Mm -hmm. which our our imagination grows Mm -hmm. and I wondered if you could speak to that in Just even in response to what you're writing here. And even as you extend in this poem, that repetition of say it, say it. Yeah. Right? Even if you don't want to. Yeah.
1: As I was reading it, it was neat because I was hearing it as like a, oh yeah, this is like a kind of a command. In the tradition of Nikki's poem, The Instructions for Young Black, Young Brown Poets, you know, that I referenced in the talk, I don't know if it exactly connects to the, to the question of the ground of brutality, because this poem feels in some way to be outside of that, because this poem is not like, for instance, a, um, it's not a poem about death and it's not a poem about brutality. It's a poem about loss and it's a poem about praise. <laughs> but I think what that poem is trying to do and what I'm sort of thinking about in terms of the the ground of our, the ground of our imaginative lives I think I'm trying to work out this thing where the engine of what we make is actually love. The engine of what we make is not despair or not what we reject or what we're fighting against, but the engine or the motivation or the heart of what we follow your heart. <laughs> <laughs> the heart of what we make is actually love, you know, so that that poem, which is sorrow. It's sorrow. It's also dance. It's also every single thing. Every single thing that's passing that we love is something that we love. Something like that. What is love? <laughs> that's a great question. I love that question. And I'll come back to it. So, but I will answer it. I love. <laughs> I don't know, but exactly. But I think I kind of do too. And one of the pleasures about writing this Delights book has been that, it, and writing the Catalog book, reading from Catalog and having people respond to Catalog has given me a lot of opportunity to sort of think with other people about mm-hmm. joy. And people are often like, you know, glad for the opportunity to sort of read poems that are engaging with joy in some kind of way, or thinking about joy. Anyway, it's gotten me thinking about joy. And obviously, the Book of Delights has me thinking about joy. And I... In the course of writing The Delights, I started to realize, oh, my subject is joy. My, You know, delight is like the thing I'm curious about and kind of whatever, theorizing in a certain kind of way. But joy is my question. And one of the things that I sort of, it's joy, gratitude, and love, these things. <laughs> and joy, as I sort of have started to think about it in this, and it's, you know, it does, it feels like this fundamental understanding that we the grandest we possible, we, the trees, we, the air, we, the molecules, we, the the worms, we, the the being born and the dying, we, all of it, are connected. And not only connected, but interdependent. And that the moments where that, that becomes radiant or luminous or even visible at all, that feels to me like joy. That feels to me like joy. Like, oh, we we are really all this one thing, which is just, I think it's just the truth. (laughs) It's just the (laughs) truth, you know, but it's like, it's not how we necessarily operate mostly. And my sense is that when I'm talking about love, um, these days, I'm talking about that thing too. Uh, So that love and joy maybe are actually the, the definitely overlapping and maybe they're actually the same thing. And that gratitude then is what you probably practice if you understand that when you understand that you are nothing without everything and that feels lucky <laughs> to get to feel that to get to feel that how many things to be grateful for like the air you know literally like air we can't live without air
0: as i was reading your work it kept leading me or Mm. sort of opening up paths to other things. And one of those books is communion by bell Hooks, Ah. And it's part of that trilogy on love. Ah. And she's talking about, well, in this one, she's sort of talking about the sort of search and quest for love or female search for love. But then she has the, you know, the all about love. And then she has a third one, which now I'm not going to remember, but all of those things sort of felt fruitful and connected and, just kept being sort of encouraged and and opened to sort of think more attentively in a way about love. And that same sort of sense of, in my mind, I have a conversation of works Uh (laughs) that have, or a conversation that began by reading your work. What is that for you as the author or as the poet? Who are the people that... You're conversing with, or the people that you would like to be.
1: I mean, bell hooks is such an important writer to me. Black looks and belonging, and books like that. When I'm thinking about love, I mean, I'm thinking about. I mean, Nikki is someone whose work I feel very much in conversation with. Nikki Finney and my very sort of close writer kin, who I've mentioned: Audre Kirma, and Patrick Rosal and and other folks, Amy Nezukumatatu, and it goes on and on. There are two essays in particular of Audre Lord's, to whom I was introduced by Nikki Finney. I knew her poems, but I had not yet read her essays. And two of her essays, Uses of the Erotic and Poetry is Not a Luxury, have been completely formative essays to me in terms of how I think of my work, but also in terms of, I think, how I live in a way. That's someone, I mean, Baldwin is someone who's so important to me. Toni Morrison is funny. <laughs> I have a friend who recently started reading Morrison deeply and was like, oh, that's kind of, she was like, something, I can't remember. So you learned that that little syntactical thing that you do. <laughs> <Morrison>. <laughs> I was like, oh, wow, you know, but, but the novels, but also the book playing in the dark about the literate whiteness and the literary imagination. It's just like completely opened up for me what American literature was and is doing and what our literature does and is doing often without it's knowing it's doing it, but also just how beautifully you can write intensely, broadly, and also succinctly. Like I realized at some point I love more than anything, I love like a 110 page book, <laughs> something about that size, it's my favorite. And like when I'm aspiring to write books, I'm always, I'm never wanting to write like a 500 page book. I'm always like, man, there's that sweet spot. And it's, and then I was relooking at Blaine in the Dark. I was like, oh, that's because when I was 20 and then when I was 24 and then, and I I've been reading this book for the last 20 years. And this book feels like it does more work in however many pages it is like a hundred ballpark than almost any book I've ever read. So it's just like been this model. So now <laughs> I realize <laughs> there are all these books that are kind of in that ballpark of length, you know, that I'm like, oh man, like Maggie Nelson's uh the uh Argonauts is kinda like 130 or something or I'm like, whoa, or Sarah Mangusa. You know, these are all writers who are really important to me. Toy Derekott, her poems across the board Her book, The Black Notebooks, is when I was sort of talking about her truly excavating what is painful and difficult and holding it to light. She's so deeply important to me. I feel very much like I've learned so much from her. I could go on. Rebecca Solnit is a writer whose work I'm just taken by and learned so much from and... You know, like Herman Melville. I love Herman Melville. Like, he feels like one of my very most important writers. Jamaica Kincaid is one of my very most important writers.
0: She's ferocious.
1: Yeah. 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 <laughs> just just <laughs> amazing. Like talk about, you know, mm-hmm. can just put so much light on a thing that might seem a little bit. And boom. Oh, that's what that is. Oh, God. You know, and then other like other kind of arts, you know, Richard Pryor is a really important thinker and writer to me. Musicians, you know, like I feel like I've learned so much from listening a lot to John Coltrane, like a lot to John Coltrane. And other people, you know, Eric Badu, like I really study <laughs> I study her music and there are ways that I feel like I'm trying to learn from some of her longer songs particularly how they're put together how you can make a kind of thing happen over 10 minutes or
0: is that just the way to be not just a writer but a a person mm -hmm. in the world right this care and attention I've
1: now I'm bringing yeah attention yeah I feel like that's that's so much it like can you pay attention? Which isn't easy to do.
0: Is it something you can teach?
1: I think totally. I think totally. Yeah. Like, you know, one of the things I love about gardening, I'm lucky enough to have a little garden and stuff that I get to play in. And it's so much about attention, you know, like all these ways that it's attention, one that it's beautiful and it makes you want to pay attention and it smells good and it it tastes good and it makes you want to pay attention. But then there are all of these ways that if you're going to be a decent gardener, you need to be paying attention. So if you see like a leaf turning a certain color, you're like, oh, this is a little deficient in this and that, or like, we need to, or blah, blah, blah. And that feels like a practice, like to be looking very closely at anything like that feels like it's training for looking very closely at anything. You know what I mean? So it can be in a garden or it could be like, you know, if you're teaching little kids or you're teaching big kids or, or, or you're working in a library, like to be attending to anything very closely is practice. But I think, I think it's hard like, and getting harder every second with more like, I'm even kind of looking around this room as with like the devices that, that are as distracting as anything, you know? So I feel like, totally, it's totally like, I feel like I pay better attention now than I did 10 or 15 years ago. I've just been practicing.
0: I wanted to ask you also about gardening.
1: Yeah.
0: Is your relationship to poetry and gardening, did those begin at the same time? Or did one Mm. develop after the other or...
1: Great question. You know, I always say that I started gardening when I moved to Bloomington, which is in, it was like 12 or 13 years ago. But that's not totally true, nor is it totally true what I usually say. <laughs> I mostly just Setting lie. the record straight. Yeah, yeah no. <laughs> set the record straight. I think I usually, like I started writing things that I call poems in college, you know. I sort of got serious about reading when I went to college. But now I'm thinking, I mean, in a way of saying like you, everything starts when you're, you know, before you think it started. But I also think we were sort of like, you know, in the apartments where I grew up, like, you know, where there was a mulberry tree and there were like raspberry bushes on the edge of the field at the sco- in the school. And there were like, you know, the pear tree on the way to my buddy Tom's house where I skateboarded with. And like all of these ways that we were sort of like in... And we were always in the woods. There was this little woods near where I grew up that we were always in the woods. So although it wasn't like gardening, it was adjacent. Not to mention my mother's family were farmers. And by the time we would spend time with them in the summer, some like a month every summer, they gardened. So we did actually have the experience a little bit of like digging potatoes and snapping peas and beans. So that's to say that I've been like around gardens since i was really little now i often think because i only read power man and iron fist comic books until <laughs> and until like i was 18 and then i started reading 18 19 i started reading books in college but i was into art i was a kid who would always be listening to my dad's records like intensely i can remember listening with headphones on like this you know he probably got them in the sixties or something. And they were big and they were real good to a record. And I was listening to earth, Wind, and fire because I am, and was crazy for earth, Wind, and fire. And I was listening and I was reading the lyrics and I could hear through the, through the headphones. I could hear my dad say, well, at least he's reading something. <laughs> <laughs> Cause my dad was like this voracious reader. And I, you know, I wasn't like, I, I wasn't that, um, at the time. Um, but I, but I feel like when you're, I feel like that's as good as reading. I mean, I was reading, but I feel like listening to this song Fantasy by Earth, Wind & Fire 5,000 times is a kind of study that is preparing you to write poems or to do something else. Or like he had some Simon & Garfunkel records and I would just like, listen, Soak or Dizzy Gillespie, like some of these records that are just so ingrained in my, in my body that I realize now like, oh right. No, I was totally training to be a poet at that point. I was already like in the beginning of being a poet. It could have been that I became like a musician or something or but I was training at like listening really closely, which I think poetry really is.
0: About listening. Yeah. Yeah. And also a type of music, a kind of music. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, And thought and sound. That's it. That's it. And beauty. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. I'd like to close with a poem. Oh yeah. Is there a poem that you would like to read?
1: You know, I might read one, this, the last poem in this book because it's, <laughs> because it's so funny. Like, it's called Thank You. That's all I do. <laughs> <It's> all. <laughs> Thank you. If you find yourself half naked and barefoot in the frosty grass, hearing again the earth's great sonorous moan that says you are the heir of the now and gone. It says all you love will turn to dust and will meet you there. Do not raise your fist. Do not raise your small voice against it and do not take cover. Instead, curl your toes into the grass. Watch the cloud ascending from your lips. Walk through the garden's dormant splendor. Say only, thank you. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Ross.
1: Yeah, it's good to talk to you. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to the Swanee Review podcast. If you like what you heard, the best way to support the Swanee Review, America's oldest continuously published literary quarterly, is by purchasing a print and online subscription at www.theswanereview.com. To discover what's happening at the Review, visit our website, or follow us on our Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook pages at The Swanee Review. Until next time, this is The Swanee Review, new since 1892.